Hey everyone, this is Dave Cruz from Flyber Labs, a podcast on business and innovation in the Midwest and beyond. Here you'll meet fascinating people and learn about new technologies and practices that will change how you look at life and business. Enjoy. Hey everyone, welcome to another episode of Flyber Labs, and today we are lucky enough to have Will Allen with us. And Will is an HP uh, fellow and v- vice president of HP Labs, which is also called the Emerging Compute Lab. So that sounds like a pretty awesome role, which I guess we'll find out. And so Will has pretty much been with HP since 1983, working in a variety of technical roles on projects like inkjet printing and digital protection displays. And now his current role is on robotics and innovation in the workplace. So I'm, I'm really excited to hear about Will's vision for robotics. Uh, it often seems we're at the tipping point with robotics, and now it kind of feels like that's the case again. So I guess we'll see what Will says. Um, I also invited Will on the show just to learn more about his experience and what he's learned. And I think he can teach us all a lot. So, Will, thanks for uh, coming on the show today. Oh, Dave, a pleasure. It's a great <laughs> pleasure. Thanks. I want to make one thing clear. I'm a, a VP at HP Labs, but I am not the VP of HP Labs. It's headed by Shane Wall, who's the Chief Technology Officer for HP. And no, don't oh, anybody think enough. I've got yes. his job. I appreciate, I, uh, I appreciate that. <laughs> yeah. And then uh, the rest of the housekeeping um I need to let everyone know the views and opinions that I'm going to express in this interview. They're solely mine in my private capacity and do not necessarily reflect the views or position strategies or opinions of HP Inc. So uh, with that, I am uh, happy to talk about robotics. I did a, I was delivered a keynote uh, at Robo Business last week at San Jose and talked about kind of the, I guess, an impending um, explosion of that I, I think will be coming soon in like home and businesses. Uh, where we'll see more robotic solutions coming into play, so that's okay. You know, we can we can talk about that yes. and and more. Yes, I, I'm pumped to hear more about that. I guess I kind of want to jump into that, but let's first let's let people get to know you a little bit, a little sure. background. So maybe uh, yeah, I know you've been at HP for a while. Can you can you give us a little bit of background and like yeah, the fifty thousand foot flyover yeah, is some the, projects we worked the, on. Yep, exactly. The first thing I worked on was uh, instrumentation, uh, logic analyzers, uh, but this is. Uh, the part of HP that eventually split off became Agilent. Uh, and that was really fun. We did our first product that had a color touch graphical interface. We launched that in about 85 or 86. Oh, wow. so way ahead of, yeah. yeah, way ahead of consumer electronics before Google existed. Um, <laughs> and so that was, that was, I mean, in its own little way, it was a, you know, a grand slam home run in a, in a, in, but maybe in single A baseball. Uh, and, then I uh, did a brief stint at a startup company on uh, more instrumentation that uh, didn't get very exciting and came back to HP and started working in printing. And I was lucky enough to be working in Vancouver, Washington, when we launched the first consumer inkjet printer, the DeskJet, mm-hmm. in 1988, and then worked with HP Labs getting a bunch of color imaging uh, technology into the inkjet product line. And that really blew the doors open on consumer imaging. So, and uh, so what was color imaging and businesses in the 90s. Okay. What was your role during like... uh, In that, I was the primary recipient of the technology transfer, the color imaging technology from labs, and I put that into the basically color photographic capability into our first three generations of consumer uh, coloring chip printers in the 90s, and then did similar work uh, assisting with basically better color imaging transferring into our large format. I work for HP in Barcelona, Spain at the end of the 90s, our large format devices, you know, that are like print, you know, it's D and E sides architectural drawings. 
uh, posters and stuff like that. So I worked a lot. One way or another, I was working on putting dots on paper. Okay, (laughs) that's right. Making pretty pictures out of it. (laughs) Good way to describe it. All right, so then after the inkjet days. Uh, I did a swing. Uh, We did a projector business uh, based in Corvallis, Oregon, and that was the mid parts of the 2000, first part of the decade of the century. And I invented a resolution-enhancing technology called Wobulation. We doubled the, the resolution of our projected images, and we had some pretty darn nice uh, uh, rear projection display products, kind of televisions. In the end, we uh, we exited that. It decided the projection business wasn't mainstream for HP. And I worked some on the Sprout uh, project, which you see uh, we've got now. It's got like this kind of – I'm not sure how familiar – you are are with it, but you can look at to uh, Sprout, you know, on HP.com or Google oh, for yeah. it. It's a computing platform that's an interaction. It's like a three-dimensional interaction area. There's a projected light that shines down, and uh, depth sensors and uh, visible cameras that look at the uh, surface that you interact on. A pressure multi-touch pressure-sensitive surface there, um, and a lot of software that, that integrates it. So it's Sort of like trying to make a little miniature holodeck. Yeah, you worked uh, on that. That's cool. I worked on that. I wasn't oh, mainstream. Cool. I got a, there's a, a small core of people you could you'll hunt up on the net that'll that'll show up as the core of the people yeah. that like you know made that that vision what, real. Brad Short what, probably what, leading the list. What was your role in that that project? I, I worked on some of the imaging system and the overall kind of sensor package and, and integration of how we'd put the, the sensing into the head and where it would be. And this was a very early generation of the, uh, of the project. And then uh, I took a different role and worked on cloud services and connecting millions of printers uh, uh, through the cloud, you know, to, to internet and other printing on ramps. And that's really when the, the, I'll joke after I left is when everybody really did everything on spot. It was, I mean, it was something I contributed to and (laughs) had a piece of, right. Right. But it's it's not my, it's not my project and I I don't deserve the, I'm not the the glory on it. I'm glad that, um, but I'm proud to say it was, you know, involved in it for a little bit and, and, and got to touch it when it was young and getting itself up off the ground. Interesting. Okay. And then more recently I've been at HP labs. I've been working a lot on, um, collaboration and, and we talk, call about, uh, talk about a concept called ambient compute, which is kind of trying to make the environment, uh, uh responsive and, uh, something you operate within rather than log on to. And recently I've been, exploring robotics a little bit hmm. interesting okay and uh you know well I, I should tell everyone at least on your according to your linkedin you have uh, over 70 patents is that right yeah 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 so, so you're a, a pretty prolific and so i'm, I'm curious and I, and I gotta say I, I need to tip my hat to Purdue university where i uh, went to college and studied computer science and spent a lot of time in the doubly and math departments as well so oh nice you know, it's okay. here for the midwest and the big 10 that's right that's right we're in madison so we we don't like Purdue always, but as as as, as a um, a brother academic institution, they're great. <laughs> um, exactly. Uh, so yeah, I, I'm curious how you were. You know, how would you describe yourself growing up? I'm I always like asking this question, especially when people are, you know, have invented a lot of stuff over their lives. You know, what did you do growing up? And yeah, can you um, describe yourself? I, I was pretty fortunate. I. Um, Professor's kid, but my my 
my mom was an art teacher. My dad was a professor of medical illustration uh, at Purdue. So I kind of grew up in an art studio, which was a, huh. if you think of that crazy professor at the edge of town, their door was never <laughs> locked and students were just kind of wondering in their house whether or not they were home. That's where I grew up, which is, oh, cool. um, it was pretty highly creative and unlimited. And I, I think that um, really helped. I mean, if you think of like somebody to me, the, some of the greatest inventors had to be the pioneers that were settling the U.S. east to west. And going off into the you know the true wild lands, right, and trying to stake stake out a homestead, and things would go wrong, and you only have what you brought with you, and it's you know be resourceful or or maybe not make it. And uh, so this wasn't an environment that was stressed like that with the pressures, but it was open, and 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 we always just put put stuff together and made things all the time. So mm, um, it's been like I think of some people that are maybe you know, good with music and their parents were into music and they were brought up around and, you know, had instruments and were playing all since they were little. So, so making things, creating things, doing it yourself, uh, inventing things, whether or not it's an invention that someone else had made, but solving problems and, you know, what to you is original manner, uh, it is pretty much something that I was lucky to grow up with. So it, it kind of left, left an imprint on me for sure. Do you, can you remember one thing in particular that you made? It's fine if you can. Uh, oh, oh gosh, um, <laughs> I remember when I learned to program computers. I taught myself, and this was when I was in middle school. I was lucky through a, a friend of mine. Dad kind of secretly, illegally gave us access to the mainframe computers yeah. at Purdue. <laughs> <No. And laughs> Professor Resic, he's gone. He's now he's retired. Mark are long gone now. So it's, uh, <laughs> it's okay. Now, <laughs> like, right? you, you, won't, you no one will get in trouble for it. So thanks, <laughs> Professor Resic. And um, so I wanted to create a simulation. And uh, 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 of something, so I decided to simulate a Monopoly game and the pieces going around, and you know the different cards that would come over and huh. and redirect you on the board, and try to see where you would tend to land the most. And I even you know put in a strategy for kind of in the beginning wanted to stay out of jail and acquire properties, and once they'd all been assigned to people, it was like better to stay in jail and that because that changes your path around the board. In the end. What that said is the orange ones, you know, New York and yeah, St. James, yeah. they get hit a lot, right? And um, uh, many years later, I read an article in Scientific American where somebody had uh, come to the same conclusion. That, that, that doesn't actually I validate that what I did was correct, because I could have accidentally gotten the right answer. But I, I'll be optimistic and think that maybe it, uh, it actually came out right. So that was something I just you know, did because it occurred to me to do it. And, and it, um, I still remember it, and I really enjoyed it. Huh. Well, I have lots of questions about that, but we're here to talk for a box. But that's really interesting. Especially you did that in middle school. That's crazy. Especially with back in those days with those. Uh, well, that was, yeah. a, I mean, people do that all the time now. So what was lucky for me was to get that exposure, yeah, yeah. you know, in like 1975, yep. 1974. Yeah. Yeah. And, uh, okay, so before we get into robots and kind of your current role, and you know, you, you, get, you gave us an overview of what you've done in the past. Is there anything in your past that you have really – whether you're proud of or like you really helped you or like you learned a ton or like you wish you could do it again, some experience. Um, was... I had, so let me answer almost that question. If it's okay, Dave, <laughs> I had a, a colleague, uh, Bob Vanegas once he said to me, Hey, tell me something you've like learned outside of work. that has been really helpful inside work. Yeah. Okay. And so, um, I thought for a little bit, I, I thought, man, that's a really good question. And the answer I came up with was, um, playing music. So I, I mean, I did play flute in middle school, a little in high school, but you know, never anything serious. But about eight years ago, I took up bass guitar and I play in a band now. And sometimes we play around town and bars and stuff and, you know, or, uh, 
farmers markets and that kind of thing. And I would say that's done a lot for my presentation skills, just in giving me comfort on stage and kind of understanding how it's, you know, that a presentation in a a way is a performance and you're trying to communicate something out across to people. And um, if I had it to do over again, I would have started that sooner in my life. Yeah. Well, that's impressive. You used to the eight years And it's ago. also a great de-stressor if you come home from work and, you know, your mind's here and blah, 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 blah. And if you really get into music, it's, I can't, I can't like, I work always kind of runs in my head, right? Yeah. Work and tech. Yeah. Like his little voices, blah, blah, blah. Well, not really voices, but, you know, <laughs> thoughts, ideas. It rambles forward. We all get voices. And, uh, yeah, we all have voices. <laughs> but, yeah, but there's, you know, but there's moments when, like, if you're really into something that, that all, all that gets quiet, right? Because you're totally in the zone. You're immersed in something else, right? You're in that, that flow state. And uh, so I find music's a nice release for that as well. Huh. That's interesting. You know, you talk about the presentation skills. I went to, I had an interview E on I don't know six months ago, and she's an opera singer and said the same thing that like any opera singer could probably be a pretty good presenter slash entrepreneur just because they know how to deliver and like they know how to mm-hmm. you know hold themselves and they what you know and read the audience and uh, yeah that's interesting, huh? Um, all right, well. Let's talk a little bit about uh, what you're doing now. Can you kind of tell us what you, your current role is and um, kind of what you're, and what you're working on? Well, I, I can. Well, I've been looking into robotics, and so I can I can kind of talk about what I uh, some kind of stuff I found from a high level, yeah. you know, looking down in there, and maybe to put a perspective on things. I'm not an expert in robotics. I study. I mean, this is the dark ages, like computer science, electrical engineering, and math. I've done a whole lot of stuff in imaging, uh, in imaging systems, but ac- across uh, across the years, I've got I think eight full product development cycles under my belt, which is a, wow. a, a lot, and yeah. you know a few more because not everything makes it out the door through various stages. And so uh, um, I have a you know a good grasp of tech and products and going on in scale, but not so much in the specific depths of robotics. Uh, so with that background, I started just kind of looking at, you know, what's out there? What do I see? What do I think's going on? And one of the things that occurred to me is I don't have any robots at home. <laughs> yeah. And I looked around and most people don't. And there's some robotic vacuums and robotic gutter cleaners. I mean, there's, a, you know, a few things out there. But in round terms, there just aren't any robots at home. And I look around my office at work and I don't see any robots there. Um and I guess you could call printers robots maybe, but let's let's say that they're not, right? They're they're kind of very special purpose devices and they're not particularly autonomous. Um and I kinda go, huh. And we walked on the moon in nineteen sixty nine, it's almost fifty years ago, and we got these like people say, You got a supercomputer in your pocket, right? That's your <laughs> smartphone. And it is by ten years, fifteen years ago standards, it's a supercomputer. And there's no, and there's almost no good robots you'd want to get in your house. And I thought these things are missing. What's the impediment? You know, what's the, what's going on here, right? And and so I'll say on the impediment side, and I'll tell some stories to fill this in in a second. There's tool, the tool set is kind of uh, intermittent or, or or spiky and not uh, not up at a high enough level of abstraction yet. And that's just natural for a young industry and, and that will come along and take care of itself. And then on the tail side, scaling up 
to have, you know, you look at something like a smartphone or a printer where there's literally millions in the field that are web connected to some service. That's a, that's a lot of security and connection to manage. It's a lot of devices to manage. If they go in other countries, you have to, you know, you're shipping physical stuff in there. You're not just downloading an app. So, it, you, you know, if someone's in Mumbai, they can't just download a robot or download a smartphone, right? It, it's itself. And so there's a there's a scale difficulty on the the tail end, and I I think that seems like the the kind of the, the two main impediments. There's all the I'll say the ingredient technologies in the last five years, you know, artificial intelligence, lithium ion power storage, right? The, I, I, uh, Ross, there's an open source operating system that's quite capable. You can build a lot of stuff on. It's like all the parts are finally here, and so you know why aren't they in the home? Well, the AI wasn't there recently, and the, Energy storage was a headache until recently, but the last couple of pieces have been have been filled in. So I think basically now we have a lot of pent up capability and, and kind of unrealized demand that people have, and I think it's going to going to uh, be exciting. And we'll, uh, as they pop in and the first solutions become successful, you'll see a lot of people pile on and it'll grow very quickly. Hmm. And and so is this your? And of... I'm talking specifically like where I, where I said I saw I'm missing right in yeah, like yeah, yeah. homes and offices. So if you think of robots that put cars together. You know, big industrial. Um, yeah. That's those guys have been around a long time. There's a few big companies that account for most of the market. It's consolidated, uh, uh, so I don't. It, it, that'll get better and better too. But I don't think it's going to go through a drastic change because I think it's it's going to just it's already established and will continue to evolve. No, that makes sense. And so, uh, as part of HP Labs, is is this kind of your full time focus now? Is robotics or is this the Something you you just you're you're interested in? I, I spend it's what I it, it, me personally I spend more time on it than anything else. But I have other I work a lot on I work on other things too, especially uh, collaboration. Gotcha. Okay. All right. Related activities. Gotcha. Um. And so, you know, I, I yeah, you mentioned like the the robots for the the cars, which makes you know those are fairly well established. But the you know the home, you know, it's such a it seems like a such a more accustomed, difficult environment. Um, what what type of robots do you think you know would initially will come to market that be, could could be uh, adopted by a mass amount of people? Well, I mean, so they're already you know the the, the one that's probably got the biggest head start is vacuum robots, yeah, yeah, right. And and you, you I mean you can look at numbers and there's millions of them out there. Um, I'm going to say there'll be, there's a couple of classes. We kind of looked and, you know, talked to people and figured out what do folks want to do with robots. And I'll make some high level groupings. There's one set that comes right to mind. Uh, it's direct task replacement. There's onerous task replacement. Yeah. So uh, you might find like 40% of people, you said, well, if you could just wave your, a wand and have a robot that did one thing for you, what would, at home, what would it be? And if it's at home, they'd probably go clean the toilet, uh, take out the cat litter. Empty the garbage, right? Something that you don't get any enjoyment out of. Um, so uh, that's a class of things that would be interesting and that, that there's a demand for. Another class is um, not totally do something for me, but help me do it. So you don't have to have a robot maybe that would I mean, if it cleaned the toilet, that would be great. People would love it, right? But if you, maybe a robot would just... Um, trundle into a bathroom and hand you cleaning supplies if you name them by voice command and and then you would do the actual work. Okay. So it's not taking all the load 
off of you. It's actually doing tasks that aren't uh, so complex as far as manipulation goes. And uh, it still might help you out and let you do something in 30 minutes versus 40 minutes. And you would feel, well, that was a, you know, a boost, yeah, right? Yeah. And then um, when you say, oh, okay, so the robot doesn't have, it could replace a task. It could assist with a task. Well, if it assists with a task that you don't like, that's fine. It could assist with a task that you do like, and that might be cool too. So I don't know, a couple of ways. Suppose you like uh, gardening. But your knees are, you know, stiff and it's hard for you to bend down. Maybe a robot will under you point a laser pointer at the ground and the robot will take a little, you know, flower that you put in a pot and set on a tray on top of it and stick it in the ground where you, where you pointed, right? So maybe it's not super sophisticated. You're doing a lot of the stuff, but it's helping you do a task and it could help you with a task where you didn't have a particular, you know, ability challenge and it could still make it better for you. So then there's three. That's yeah. So I'm. I'm I'm, I'm, I'm circling around your question, right? What can the robots do? Well, they can replace things you don't like to do, help you with things that you don't like to do, and help you with things that you like to do. Now, uh, for sure, the uh, really complex and kind of um, non-specified and advanced manipulation of things is pretty hard, like fold my shirts, right? Load yeah, the dishwasher. Yeah. Um, some point in the future, for sure, all this will be overcome. but if you think of how the wave of technology will come in, it seems like it'll start with things that require, I'll just say, less sophisticated manipulations in the environment and progress forward. And we already see that. We see um, uh, vacuuming robots, right? They have a certain interface with the environment, but there's a bunch of stuff they don't do. Uh, you see some social robots that can be really interesting and I think will be very important for people, but they don't necessarily have to have a lot of physical interaction with the environment. Um you see robots that are doing some security patrols, right? Uh, and you see robots that, um, if you look on the internet, you'll you'll guide you from. You're starting to see hotels. They'll guide you from the hotel up to your room, or they'll bring you toothpaste if if you needed toothpaste, right? right? And you forgot it. But it to bring your toothpaste, yes, it has to get there, and that that's a lot of technology. But it doesn't even have to manipulate anything. It could just have a tray on top of the robot, and a human loads it, says go to room 602, and then it, if it can get there, which is a pretty good deal, and avoid folks and not get lost or stuck in the elevator or anything else, um, it doesn't even have to, you know, manipulate these items to hand them to the person. It just has to basically wait at the door until it, you know, believes it, that somebody's picked them up and uh, go back and get some more. So I think you'll see them. So there, I gave those three classes of use, and I think you'll just see them bleed in first from from places where the amount of physical manipulation is is uh, less sophisticated and more, you know uh, and more constrained, and then um, that will obviously just progress forward over time. It's the, the the kind of the, the physical capabilities that can be delivered for cost, you know, what amounts of money that people are interested in paying. No, that makes sense. And well, and f funny enough, we I interviewed a. The CEO of Savioke, which is they, – they have the robots for the hotels. <laughs> mm -hmm. Yeah, Steve, right, so, exactly. Yeah, Steve. Um, but, yeah, he was a – so we talked a little bit about those challenges. The The toughest part was uh, the elevator, which makes – I didn't think about it, but it makes sense after he said it because like, – it, it, yeah. <laughs> it does. Um, and it's it, it depends on what you want the robot to do. So if the robot's delivering something, it may need to ride in the elevator. If – uh, I, I use telepresence robots 
frequently. We got you know some in Palo Alto, and yeah. I, I live in Corral, based in Corvallis, and we have them on. Um, in one building, we have facilities. My my team has facilities downstairs and upstairs, and we have a telepresence robot upstairs, one that's downstairs. So I don't, you know, there is no elevator problem, right? I simply you know just switch to the other one. But if I had to deliver something with it, that's different. Like you know, it's a uh, it's, it's physical, and and so I can't uh, skirt the problem by just simply having an extra device. No, you could, for example, on vacuum robots, just say, "Oh, I have a two-story house, and I have a downstairs one and an upstairs one," and that you know it would, except for the stairs not getting vacuumed, it would pretty much uh, it'd be a way to solve it. Yeah, that's true. That's true. Right now, there might be expense. I'm not saying it's the the right answer, but. Uh, if they weren't expensive, you could do it. So is uh, is HP looking into Robox? I know some of this is on your personal time, but is HP thinking about building kind of a Robox platform or Well, I, I or... can't. I, yeah, I'm not, I'll have to just like be a clam if it's, yeah. if it's anything about what we might yeah, or might not do in enough. the future. I mean, I can make general statements and say <laughs> HP looks at a lot of technologies in the future, and we're always trying to find ways to, you know, well, we they they or I'm speaking as me. They're always trying to find ways to you know bring great value to customers. So, yeah. fair um, enough. <laughs> I mean, so so well, so 3D print is an example of something that that HP did that was different, right, from a, a existing business. Yep. So yeah, I, yeah, I think HP is coming out with a a pretty fast 3D printer. I read. I don't know. That's if the on. that's the 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 big differentiator is that it uh, it processes. By area rather than by a like kind of single um, point. Wow! So it's much faster. So it's it's really kind of low volume manufacturing equipment, where um, uh, like an extrusion style, you know, fine, a fused deposition modeling, you know, FDM machine, right? Hot melt glue gun on a stick. That's uh, it, they're just. Well, they're fa- faster than car- you know carving metal or, or, or sending it to the machine shop, but they're actually not that fast as far as parts per hour if you needed to put something the size of you know a standard coffee cup on i'll just say a typical uh uh extruding uh, you know single nozzle 3d yeah. printer that, that might take six or eight hours oh wow wow there and uh in the end our second daughter has does like commercial design uh uh work in 3d print as a custom right as a business and can I say your business name? Is that okay? Or? Oh, yeah. Well, that's great. Yeah, Vreda Forge, B-R-E-D-A, VredaForge.com. Okay. And w- what she's got like a background in art and a background in engineering. One of the things that, that we were talking about it, and in the end, you can think of there's so many grams per second of plastic that come out the nozzle of the printer. And if you print an object that weighs seven grams, you can there's a instant equation, and that's the quickest possible print time you could have. Right, because you have to push all the grams of the object through the little hole, and then there's moments when it's not printing, when it's moving the head from one area to another, or repositioning between layers and such. So there's actually a little bit of, you know, it's never as good as that theoretical per- perfection. And so you can just work out in the machines that they just don't put a lot of grams per second of material down, so they're slow. And HP's process works on an area, it's, uh, not a volume at once, but it does it in the whole plane at a time. So it's pretty quick. Interesting. Okay. And so with uh, robotics, you know, if you could, uh, well, and maybe, I don't know if you can disclose this or not, but if you could focus on, you know, one particular area, you know, whether it's, maybe it's just the whole package, you know, I was thinking, well, is the AI the most important in the battery? Um, is well, it, let, let me focus, uh, there is something that's real important, and, and it, it, I think you said it, you said the whole package, 
And um, I, I mentioned that I thought the tools up front were kind of choppy. Yeah. And I'll illustrate with a story and then elaborate. So a couple of years ago, my wife says to me, hey, Will, uh, I say to her, what do you want for Christmas? And she says, I want a blog. And this is true, okay? <laughs> and I said, what do you mean a blog? I mean, where do I get it? At, at the, is it the drugstore? Is it the grocery store? She says, no, I don't want like to buy a blog. I want to do blogging, right? And she set me up so I can do blogging. And, uh, and so I did some research. Like, There's numerous you know, uh, uh, tools out there. And I think I got her hooked up with the Google's tool and said, look, this is, so here's your Christmas present. I gave her a single URL, right? <laughs> <laughs> so she logs on and, you know, sets herself up and just drag and drop. And like in 30 minutes, she has a blog page up with a calendar on it and a little picture in the background and da, da, da. And 15 minutes after that, she's done some rearranging. And then about 15 minutes after that, an hour after she started, she'd rearrange it like a third time. And that's third time's a charm. And she kind of left it and you know, blog for months. Right. And was uh, quite happy at it because it, it took her an hour to get to where what she was doing was writing and, pub and publishing, basically. And that was what she wanted to do. And, and everything with the computer part was just the work required to get it set up. Well, if let's wind the clock back and say it's 1995. Well, what do you want for Christmas? Oh, I'd like a blog. Uh, OK. <laughs> and I pull out an HTML programming book and I go, well, honey, how about it'll probably be ready for Christmas 96. Tell me what you want, and and, it, and I'm not going to be able to change it after after we make it because this is a lot of work. Um, now, I'm not saying drag and drop robotic development platforms are right around the corner, uh, but what I'm saying is that the, I mean, there's tools that do the vision system, there's tools for the AI, there's tools for network connectivity, tools for data security. All the pieces are there, but there aren't the developers still work uh, with a lot of discussion between people in different disciplines. So this is something I'm, I, I, a way I could kind of be sort of a metric, I think, of maturity in an industry is you, the person doing the motion planning, the person doing power management, the person doing industrial design, somebody doing, if it's a vacuum, you know, suction and, and storage of the little bag. If those different technical experts have to talk to each other a lot to get the system running, that means it's kind of immature. And as we come up, the level of abstraction and, and the overall technology you know, kind of platform that we operate on gets more mature. Those different disciplines can can do their their work, and they don't have to talk to each other as much. And I'll give you an example: like in the '60s in the U.S., um, all the divisions at General Motors made their own motors. Right? Pontiac made engines, Chevy made engines, Oldsmobile's defunct, but back then they made engines. And today, I got a, a Ford truck with a Mitsubishi transmission which means the folks at Ford didn't have to like know a lot about what was inside the transmission. They just had to know how to spec the interface to one and if they were getting a good price for it. So um, I, I think on the front side that everything of robotics together, as you said, as the tools mature and the creative people making robotic solutions are able to worry less about the other disciplines and more about what they're instantiating and pushing forward, that's, that's the last that's the real last sort of missing piece. And it's not an individual technology component. It's more of how we manage and work across them. Hmm. Gotcha. And, and I, and I know you have experience kind of, uh, putting together technologies like that. You know, how would you start designing a system to, uh, bring that all together? Well, um, Really, you can look at, like I say, you can look at other technologies. You, you, what you're trying to do is move up the, is, what I say is you want to move up the stack. Yeah. 
So uh, I, I would almost work it backwards from the end application and the user and the way you wanted them in an ideal case to either you know, interact with the device slash service or the device slash service to interact with its environment and try to think of what's required to describe that interaction. And that's like an interface. It's almost like an API, right? Mm -hmm. And then um, you're going to, as close as you can get, try to get your tool set to support the conversation or the layer, one one layer below that where you'd want to be doing most of your integration. So uh, at Robo Business, they gave it, Anki gave a nice presentation about Cosmo, and there's a, you know, it's a good clip on the web about it, right? It's a little robot that's like the size of a hamster. It looks kind of like a, uh, little bulldozer and it's got a personality so it's a, they've embodied a cartoon and they had to pull together people of lots of different disciplines there's musicians and uh, animators to you know give it a personality and mechanical engineers electrical engineers sensors computer vision um, but the thing isn't real it's not their vision until it's up to this more of how a cartoon works and a cartoon mm -hmm. gets animated so so it's almost like in there, if they could wave a wand, they'd want that that animation and interaction layer. They'd say, that's the space I want to design in, and everybody else go make it work underneath and hide it from me. Interesting. So, right. that's, that, so, so I'm saying it would actually depend on what the application and the, the interaction yeah. was, but kind of the, 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 the ideal tool layer that, that, that I would want to yeah. have there. It's like you're almost creating the application layer in software, but for robotics, you just care about the, the top. Yeah, makes sense. Well, I mentioned that, that logic analyzer years ago where we did the touchscreen. So what happened was we took a workstation that had a color monitor on it, and you programmed it in Pascal, and it had a nice set of graphics libraries. So real flexible and easy and simple, boom, to put dots on the screen and make stuff. Then we took a touchscreen from an HP 150 computer, literally ripped it off, resoldered the components on vector board with a bigger hole in it, taped it with duct tape. I love, you know, honest and good old American ingenuity, right? We duct taped that onto the, my, my workstation. And then we had a color touch workstation. Um, and from there we made all, we, sp we made all the screens and interactions that we thought the final product should have without any product hardware that could actually acquire data, right? Like a real logic analyzer. And that kind of set the platform and was a definition. And then we, it took three years to build to actually build the instrument behind it. But we worked it down from the interaction and the way we wanted it to work in an unconstrained environment. So this is kind of what they tell you to do in you know, user design, yeah, uh, yeah. experience design, and, and agile, right? And, and this uh, thing on the workstation where we could change it every day and try another version was basically like a low-resolution prototype, and we iterated on it, which is kind of like agile stuff. But we weren't, we weren't constrained with what physically would happen Right, and we weren't evolving an old design. We were working backwards from the user and kind of just pretending it was like La La Land, and we were making the movie of what we wanted. And it's like, okay, we've got the movie, right? All right, now we just have to build the stuff behind it so it's not smoke and mirrors. Huh. Now, obviously, you're thinking of the whole stack, and there's like no, you don't want to put quote put a scene in the movie you can't like really make. But uh, it's a, no, it's, a, it's a that same mentality. That's what I would. That's what I think will happen here. Yeah, as yeah. Well. Oh, that'd be exciting. And uh, so we're almost done with the podcast. I got a couple more questions, and this one I don't know if it's long or short, but long or short answer. But you know, you mentioned that uh, one of the things you're doing is the work, working on like the workplace of the future. Is that around yes. robotics, or is that a whole different? Uh, I, I would say, well, it's it's mostly around the interaction of people and, and we, what we'll call ambient computing. So just yes. imagine you walked into a room and there were a couple of screens on the wall and they kind of lit up 
and started interacting with you with either what you expected to happen next or an experience that was going along, like you walked in a room and you were talking to someone on a phone because you were connected to a teleconference. And when you get into this room, the conversation might just jump onto the screens and and Mm -hmm. video would would pop up and um, uh, it would just shift over, right? So that's, I'm just using that as a little vignette to, to illustrate, but in lots of ways, there's a whole lot of opportunities with how people interact with, with computers and, uh, and, and compute, really, more within how they interact with computing and less about how they interact with computers or any particular piece of uh, hardware that's in front of them. Interesting. Huh. Well, that's another whole so, I mean, I mean, that makes sense because <laughs> we have a large – I mean, we have a large business selling com- computers yes. and computing actually as a as an experience. So. No, well, that makes a lot of sense with uh... – yeah, because right now, you, there's no fluid experience like that, especially the one you just described. I know you're probably working in other areas too, but that's well. Uh, so here's I mean here's something interesting. The other day I was on an airplane flight, and I, so I decided to watch 2001, the old you know movie, yeah. right? And and you know, but it was a view of the future from science fiction. So just like with we're not encumbered by the you know reality of when Arthur C. Clarke wrote this story, and I was watching Dave and Hal. Dave doesn't log on to Hal. There's no password. Hmm. Okay, there are these little red eyes that Hal looks out of and can interact with Dave at various, you know, uh, stations or uh, access points right through the ship. He has a single conscious interaction it, relationship with Hal. It, it doesn't start again, right? It's it's just like it was a person. It, it builds from what they did yesterday and what's happening now. And um, that's actually a pretty nice vision of how uh, certain parts of computing should work, right? Where you have an experience that's contiguous to you, and so you don't have to get in and get out of it because it's the thing that was uh, – it's kind of where you left it from before or where you expected it to right. be. How you That's like the way you, know, you interact with people. He remembers your, kind of the last state. <laughs> it's more, yeah, uh, so uh, hopefully we want to have a happier ending where the computer doesn't go <laughs> insane and has yes. to get a lobotomy and all of that stuff, right? <laughs> Let's let's hope that'd probably be good. Um, no, I like that vision. All right, well, I got uh, one more question for you. I'm I'm curious. This is a uh, more personal. What if you? Uh, what robot are you especially excited for in the home or workplace when that robot comes? So with- I, I um I'll say uh, a general class is I think social robotics is going to be really interesting. We've got a globally a population demographic that's shifting and the number of people that are retired as a ratio to the number of people working is going to grow a lot in whole parts of the lots of parts of the world and just to have interaction uh, social robots can pull people together over distance and they can also make people happier in a local environment and help them uh, uh, change their habits um, and I, I think that's a pretty interesting area because people often think a robots doing you know direct physical things, but maybe the thing the robot does is entertain you or make you happier or help connect you with someone that you love. Hmm. And that, uh, I just think holds a great, wonderful promise for, for society. So hmm. I'm, I'm optimistic about it. Oh, I like that. That's a, that's a good way to end the podcast. Kind of sad to end the podcast, but, uh, at least that's a good way to end it. <laughs> well, David, it's been, yeah, it's been a real pleasure talking with you. Thank you. Definitely. We really appreciate your uh, time and your, thoughts will and sharing your experience and what the future holds it's it's definitely exciting and uh yeah 
and uh, thanks everyone for listening to another episode of Flower of Labs. As always, I appreciate it. And uh, thanks, Wilgen, for coming on the show. Uh, my pleasure. All right. Bye, everyone. We'll see you next time.